how we run a race, both individually and collectively. In other words, our Christian experience is going to be largely determined by whether or not we understand and believe that when we came to Christ, we did not come to Mount Sinai. We came to Mount Zion. To which you are thinking, I have no idea what that means. Well, that's what we want to talk about this morning. If you have a Bible, turn with us to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to pick it up in verse 12, which starts with the word therefore. You know what I'm going to say. Whenever you see the word therefore, you stop and see what it's there for. You're, you're such fine students. So you always have to back up with the therefores and try to figure out what it's referring to. So the cloud of witnesses, the heroes of faith, running this race with endurance, most immediately this idea that because God loves us, God's not wanting to punish us. God's wanting to help. So he teaches us, he instructs us. Sometimes it's necessary to correct us in order that we stay on the path and we run our race Well, having understood that, verse 12, therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So what's he talking about there? The two phrases, hands, it's literally wrists that are limp, And knees that are feeble or weak. Both of those are athletic metaphors. It's an imagery. You imagine someone who's running a marathon. They're exhausted. They can't run one more step. They stop. They're bent over. Their wrists are limp. Their knees are weak. They're about to pass out. The word strengthen is literally a word that means to straighten up. So basically, they they regain strength. They straighten up. And they continue to run. They're going to run with endurance. They're going to finish the race. The idea of straight paths is an imagery that doesn't make much sense to us, but it's actually very common in the scriptures. You see it a lot, especially in the poetical books. So in the ancient world, roads weren't paved. Roads weren't nice. They were typically windy. They were hilly. They were full of rocks and boulders. So the best option, like the the best path, would be a path that's straight, not hilly, and free from stones and rocks and obstacles. So this is an imagery that's used often. So think, for example, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. In verse 6, it says, In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will what? Make your paths straight. So very common imagery that this is the best path possible. So the idea of the imagery is especially if someone is already wounded. That a straight path allows them to heal rather than to be wounded yet further. 
So one of the things that's very interesting about verses 12 and 13 is everything's in the plural. It's not just talking about an individual race. It's talking about a race we run together. And to realize we're all in this together. There's those among us this morning whose wrists are limp, whose knees are weak. They're not sure they're going to make it. We talk about this all the time on staff. We recognize on any given weekend, there's people here hanging by a thread. There's people who aren't sure they're going to make it one more week. There are people that are broken, people that are discouraged. There's people with terminal diseases, they're dying. There's people whose children are rebelling, their marriage is falling apart. People that are dealing with chronic pain. There's all kinds of stuff going on in this room this morning. And to realize this is not an individual race, but we're teammates. We're not only family, but we're teammates. We're running this together. And the idea is that we understand that and we come alongside them and we strengthen them. That, that we provide an environment where they're not going to get hurt further, but rather an environment where they can find healing, where they can run their race with endurance. This is really the heartbeat of what we're trying to accomplish with the sections. We don't just do this so you can have a donut together. The intent is to realize, hey, there's people around you and they're really hurting. They're kind of hanging on by a thread. Do you realize 60 seconds of kindness and compassion can sometimes give people what they need to say, I can make it one more week. I can do this. To come alongside of the struggling and say, hey, I know it's really hard for you right now, but we're in this together and we're going to get through this and we're going to get to the finish line. We're going to do it together. That's what we're called to be about as the people of God. It's a beautiful picture of our calling. But it does raise a question. How exactly does that happen? So starting in verse 14, there's some detail related to that. First thing, verse 14. Pursue peace with all men or all people. Very similar to what Paul says in the book of Romans, as much as possible, pursue peace with everyone. The word pursue is a term that was used to describe a hunter pursuing an animal. So this is not a passive verb. This is an active verb. This is not sitting around hoping everything's going to be peaceful today. It's a very active pursuit of peace. This Greek word for peace is as close as we come in the Greek language, to the Hebrew word shalom. It's the idea of flourishing, of a mutual flourishing, of creating an environment that is a straight path where people aren't going to get re-wounded or hurt more deeply, but actually a place of healing so that we can all run this race well together. Now think about this. In a culture that has become so angry, that's become so toxic, that is just so out of control. Every week people are abused. Every week people are bullied and pushed around. People are devalued. People are made to feel like they don't belong and they're not accepted and they're less than. Where do people go to find an environment that is other than that? 
You think of all this stuff going on on social media that's just so toxic. We have to understand as Christians, we simply can't be part of that. We can't be part of it in any way. That's not our calling. We don't need to add to the tension and the conflict. We are called to pursue peace, to create an environment that's other than that. Another way to think of it is life is hard enough as a Christian without creating unnecessary conflict. You may be strong enough to take it, but what's the damage being done to the people around you? So the idea is, how do we create an environment where people can flourish? We pursue peace. We pursue it like a hunter hunting some sort of an animal. The next phrase, and, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. We've talked about this. The writer of Hebrews uses sanctification different than the Apostle Paul. Paul tends to use it as an ongoing process. The writer of Hebrews uses it as a noun, as something that is. The moment we trust Christ as Savior, we become citizens of the heavenly city. And as citizens of the heavenly city, we are called to give people in this world a glimpse of the world to come. And so we are called to be set apart. I like the definition other than the rest of the world. We understand the, the anger and the abuse and the bullying, everything that goes on in the culture. But we are called to be the people of God. We are called to create something other than that as our witness. That's our testimony. That there's something about us that's different. That's the sanctification. Verse 15, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That's a wonderful statement. God's grace is enough. The world's system is based on competition and comparison. It's a system based on performance. What breaks us loose from that is this amazing thing called grace. And on the basis of the grace of God, everything is different. I not only view myself that way, but I view those around me that way. Understanding grace means that there's nobody more than, there's nobody less than in Christ. Whether you've been a Christian for 24 hours or whether you've been a Christian for 50 years, there's nobody more righteous, there's nobody more accepted, there's nobody more loved, there's nobody more more than. On the basis of the grace of God, we come equally in need of the grace of God. It levels the playing field. Therefore, there's enough grace for everyone. Now again, stop and think about how different that is from our culture. With all the anger and hostility, with all of the, the abuse and the bullying and the put-downs, how many people in the room would say they don't really feel loved or accepted or looked up to in the culture? Most people struggle with that at some level. 
But is there a place where we can have an understanding that we're all equal before a holy God because of the grace of God? Is there a place we can create where people flourish, where they know they're not going to be bullied, they're not going to be pushed around, they're not going to be rejected, they're not going to be put down, but rather this place is different. There's enough grace for everyone. There's never an appropriate time for anyone to look at anyone else and think, I'm more spiritual than you are. Nor should there ever be a time when somebody looks at somebody else and says, I'm less spiritual than anyone else. That's the amazing thing about grace. It levels everything off. There may be people here, they don't look like you. They don't live like you. They don't smell like you. They don't have your same politics. But there's enough grace For everyone, shouldn't there be a place and shouldn't it be the people of God that create such a place where people can honestly come to grow, to heal, to feel accepted, to feel loved, to feel wanted? Whatever is broken that they feel healing and strength and will run this race together all the way to the finish line. That's what he means by that. No one comes up short of the grace of God. If we don't do that, he says that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. If we don't do that, and people rather are just hurt more, are just rejected more, are just bullied more, what happens is is a root of bitterness. Bitterness is basically just anger turned inside. And it begins to create a bitterness. A bitter root produces bitter fruit. And it just adds to the breakdown of a culture or a community. And so if we don't take the calling seriously, people are going to get hurt. That creates a bitterness. The bitterness, he says, leads to all kinds of trouble and it defiles. It contaminates our souls. And when our souls get contaminated, we start to make really bad decisions. Verse 16, that there be no Immoral. That's the word from which we get our word pornography. Refers to any kind of sexual sin. One of the unique things about sexual sin is people turn to sexual behaviors when they're hurt, when they're wounded, when they're bitter, when they're angry, when they're struggling. It's not a coincidence that the more angry and toxic we become as a culture, the more our sexual behavior gets out of control. So people turn to either sexual relationships, people turn to pornography. It becomes like a refuge to deal with the pain and the bitterness within them. That's what he's referring to. That there be no immoral or godless. We would use the word secular person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. So if you're not familiar with the story, Abraham had a son Isaac, Isaac had a son Esau. Esau was the firstborn. 
that culture would have had the birthright, would receive the majority of the inheritance. So God made a promise to Abraham, went through Isaac, then to Esau. But Esau was not interested in the promise. It doesn't mean he was a bad guy. It just meant he's a completely secular guy. He had no spiritual interest. Didn't buy into the promise to Abraham. So he comes in from hunting and he is starving. His brother Jacob has made a stew. And Jacob basically says, tell you what, I'll give you a bowl of stew in exchange for the birthright. Well, I'm sure Esau thought, well, Isaac's got nothing to pass on. It's no big deal. So he made the deal. Now, the interesting thing is the next day, Esau would have got hungry again. It was just this momentary satisfaction of this hunger in exchange for the inheritance. So eventually it comes the day when Isaac's about to die and he's going to pass on the inheritance, the promise. And Esau changes his mind. That changed my mind. I want it now. But God sovereignly superintends and makes sure the promise goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. There's this, this sobering picture that when we become angry, when we become bitter, when we're hurt, we just start to experience kind of the contamination, the defilement of our souls. We just start to make bad decisions. We start to trade that which will last forever for that which is in the moment. We live day to day. We live for the things of this world. Then we get to the finish line. We change our minds. Wait a minute. I want to do over. You only get one shot at life and it's like at the end, I, I, I want to rethink this. I want to do over. But there is no do over. And that's kind of the imagery of the story of Esau. This is what happens when people get hurt. This is what happens when we don't create an environment where we can flourish in this race together. Now, the foundation of this conversation is really built on what we've talked about throughout the book of Hebrews and the contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. That's cleverly reviewed in verses 18 through 24. For you have not come to a mountain, meaning Mount Sinai, that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not even bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. So this is recapturing what happened on Mount Sinai. When Moses went up the mountain to basically enter into the presence of God and received the old covenant. It was an experience of of sound and fire and fury and trembling. It was this, this uh, moment of absolute terror for the people. God made a boundary around Mount Sinai and told the people they couldn't come any closer. You can't as sinners just stroll into the presence of God. And if you do, you will die. 
But God took it one notch further. He said, by the way, if even an animal crosses the boundary, they're to be put to death. And the people said, we can't take this anymore. We don't want to hear anymore. They were absolutely terrified. Even Moses himself was trembling and terrified by the awesomeness of this moment. That's capturing the old covenant. That's why the Apostle Paul called it a a ministry of death. It was a ministry of condemnation. The presence of God would dwell within the holy of holies in the tabernacle. No one could come close except the high priest and the high priest one time a year. There was this sense of the awesome holiness of God and the law and their inability to keep the law. It was a covenant of bondage. And as long as that defines the culture, it will never really be a place of flourishing and grace like he just talked about. Verse 22, but if you're inclined to write in your Bible, I'd circle that. This is the big moment. But you, us as Christians, we did not come to Mount Sinai. You have come to Mount Zion. So Mount Zion was the mountain upon which Jerusalem sat. The temple would sit, the place of the crucifixion, the place of the resurrection. But all of that was yet figurative of the heavenly Zion, the ultimate heavenly Jerusalem. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads, which means thousands and thousands of angels. So it's this picture of this heavenly city full of thousands of angels to the general assembly. Now, I would suggest to you in 21st century American language, that's a very unfortunate translation. Because what we hear is something like the United Nations. Sounds very administrative and very boring. That's not what the word is at all. It is a Greek Term that was a reference to their grand festivals. Most famously, this magnificent festival that was held during the Greek Olympics. It was a time of joyful celebration. The runners are running and people gathered by the thousands to live it up, to party, to celebrate this wondrous moment. So if you think about the running imagery, it all fits very nicely there. The myriads of angels to the general assembly, the festival, and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So who's that? Well, that's us. This is the already not yet part of our theology. I'm already a citizen of the heavenly city. I'm an alien and a stranger on this earth. My citizenship is now in heaven, but I don't live there yet. I still live here. So it's true of me there, but I'm not there yet. So we're the runners and we're running the race and the festival's going on and the angels are gathered there. It's this magnificent scene in the heavenly city. And and to God, the judge of all. So God is there, and God's the ultimate judge. Now, when people hear about God as the judge, most people automatically think negative. People think condemnation. People kind of imagine biting their nails and wondering, do I get through or not? 
So it's really important to understand a judge not only condemns, a judge vindicates. The judge stands there and says, on the basis of the payment that was made, God made a promise, God made an oath that the ultimate high priest who sacrificed himself for sin was sufficient for sin once for all. And as long as that high priest lives, then the payment is good. We have that in Hebrews. He's not standing there waiting to condemn us, but rather to declare us righteous before a holy God. The judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made Perfect. I think that's talking about the saints who have died, the cloud of witnesses, those that are already in the presence of Jesus gathered in the festival. Verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Ultimately, to Jesus, who is the one who's made it all possible. So we are headed to Mount Uh, Zion to the heavenly city where the angels are gathered, where there's this magnificent celebration, where God is there ready to vindicate us and declare us righteous, where those who have gone before us are there. And while we're enrolled in the books of heaven, we're still running our race. They're waiting for us to get there. It's this magnificent festival. And it's all built on the blood of Jesus that was shed once for all time. The idea of the blood of Abel's is referring to the fact that he was the first one in the scriptures that we know of that offered a blood sacrifice. He was the first hero of faith in chapter 11. His blood sacrifice was merely a shadow, like the sacrifices of the old covenant. But the blood payment of Jesus wasn't a shadow. It was the fulfillment. It was the final payment once uh, made once for all time, sufficient for sin, which is the basis by which we enter uh, Mount Zion. So again, you think about the context of this. As long as we're still thinking old covenant, we're still thinking law, we're still thinking judgment, we're still thinking God is out to get us, we're still thinking competition and comparison, we're caught up in all this legalism and all this bondage, it's just going to be one wound after another. You're never going to be able to create an environment that sets people free, an environment where people flourish, an environment where people can come and be accepted and find healing. So as long as we think we've come to Sinai, we're never going to get there. But we have to remember we've actually come to Mount Zion. We've come through the grace of God. We've come through the shed blood of Jesus. No matter who you are, no matter what your story is, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, we stand righteous in the presence of a holy God. It's not that God is less holy on Mount Zion. He's not less holy. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The difference is that the payment has been made once for all. And on the basis of that payment, we as sinful men and women stand right before a holy God now and forever. 
So it's not fear and trembling. Man, it's party time. It's a festival. This is awesome. The heavenlies will celebrate forever. As long as we understand that, we begin to live that way on earth. We create an environment where people can flourish. An environment of kindness and compassion and love and acceptance. A place where people can come and they can heal and they can run the race. We'll do this together all the way to the finish line. That's the idea. That's the theological foundation necessary to make it happen. Verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he is promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Now that's perfectly clear, is it not? (laughs) That is so confusing. But here's what he's saying. That when God spoke from Mount Sinai, as terrifying as it was, they didn't listen. They didn't listen, they didn't listen, they didn't obey, they didn't follow him. Remember, that's the generation that didn't even make it into the land of promise. They didn't believe. We have that in Hebrews 3, because of their unbelief, they didn't make it in. So there's a reminder, they didn't listen. And the consequences were real and they were severe. So now God has come from heaven to earth and to establish a new covenant established on the base of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It is a better covenant built on better promises with a better hope headed to a better city. So if we don't listen to that, then we're going to miss what God wants for us on Mount Zion. The quote is from the book of Haggai. I'm sure most of you knew that and were reading Haggai this week. But for those who didn't, the idea that the first time what shook was the mountain on earth. But there's going to be one more time, and that's the second coming of Jesus, where he's going to shake it one more time. Only that's not only going to be shaking the earth, but heaven and earth. The imagery is everything that's not eternal is going to be shaken off the earth. That's just an imagery. But imagine all the stuff of this world that is temporal just gets shaken off the earth. It all comes flying loose. And the only thing that's left are the things that remain, the things that will last forever. And then he ushers in the new heaven, the new earth, our final resting place. Which then gets to verse 28. Therefore, in light of that, because that's true, Since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. So I want to stop right there. I am well aware aware of the fact that anytime we talk about these kind of warning passages, 
where it's like, if you do not listen, God's going to come. He's going to shake heaven and earth and everything that's not uh, eternal will come flying off. There's always people that are like, oh, no. Oh, no. What if that's me? What if I'm not really saved? What if I don't really believe? What if I come flying off the earth when he shakes it? Okay, let's remind ourselves. He's talking about the grace of God, a salvation we have received. He's not talking about your performance. He's not talking about whether or not you were super Christian this week. He's not talking about whether or not you have somehow earned favor with God. Look at what the verse says. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom. So all you have to do is answer the question, have you or have you not trusted in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for your salvation? Have you received his gift? If so, you're enrolled in heaven. You're not going to get shaken off the earth. This kingdom can't be shaken. You're part of something that will last forever. It's meant to be a point of encouragement, of strength, not a point of fear. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Because of what's true, because we've come to Mount Sinai, because of what we've received, because we are now part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken, it will endure forever. All he asks in return is that in gratitude, we actually live like we believe it's true. That's what he's saying, that in service, in the way that we live our lives, we live in such a way that it reflects, we actually believe it's true. This is what we learned in Hebrews 11.1, 1, that the sub- substance of faith is the idea of we so believe the hope of the gospel. We so believe what he just explained to us is true, that we actually live that way now. We actually give people a bit of a glimpse of the kingdom to come today. We create an environment where people can flourish. We create an environment where people can find healing. We create an environment where people experience acceptance and kindness and compassion and love when they're broken and they're wounded and they're needy and they're struggling. There's a place where you belong. There's a place where you fit. There's a place where you can heal. There's a place where we're going to come alongside of you and say, we're in this together. Let's make it all the way to the finish line together. It is a glimpse, just a glimpse, of the heavenly city to come. Wouldn't you join me in praying that God would allow Lincoln Berean for the glory of God to be such a place? Our Father, we're so thankful that when we were lost in our sin, you sent Jesus, to be the fulfillment of the promise that we can receive salvation freely as a gift. 
But God, we are sobered at the reminder of our responsibility to create something as the people of God so different from the culture that it's set apart, that it's noticeable, that it becomes our witness to the life-changing power of Jesus. Lord, may we be such a place for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.